If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Please keep your Bible open this morning, 15, 42 through chapter 16, verse 8. The text is also printed in your bulletin this morning. On this Easter morning, it's appropriate. We are finally, and I would say, and I hope you would say too, if you've been coming the last couple of months, set to the end of our series in the Gospel of Mark. I've loved this book. It has ministered to my soul in so many ways. And we conclude our series this morning, again, appropriately with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you probably watched the Masters if you're into golf last week. And any professional golfer would tell you when thinking about the Masters that that is it. That uh, that's what it's all about, winning the Masters. That it is a huge deal in the life of a golfer, a professional golfer. Well, in a similar way, we could say for Christians that Easter is what it's all about. That Easter is a huge deal. It's such a big deal that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says this, If Christ did not walk out of the grave, then what I'm doing here this morning in preaching is an utter waste of time. Paul said that your faith, if you're a Christian, if Jesus was not resurrected, is worthless because you are still in your sin. Let me put it another way. If Jesus did not walk out of the grave, you got dressed up, you ate chocolate bunnies this morning, and you fixed a nice Easter meal that you will eat this afternoon or this evening for nothing. And what we are doing here under this tent and all the work that went in it, into it is a complete waste of time. Why? Because Easter is the foundation of Christianity. It is the pivot point in all of human history. It's why one pastor, and I love this, I read this this week, when someone leaves his church, at his church, who leaves the faith, he has one question, and I love this, one question that cuts through all the excuses, all of the noise, and that one question that he has for those in his church who have left the faith is, when did you stop believing in the resurrection? And the reason why it comes down to that one question is because that's all that matters. And so with that in mind, follow along with me as I read. This is God's Word, Mark chapter 15, 42 Through 16, verse 8, this is God's word. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him, whether he, had already, he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he had laid And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. 
And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See... Um, see the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is perhaps the most personal Easter sermon that I've ever preached. Uh, Many of you know that my mother was diagnosed with cancer in October, and she's in the last weeks of her life. And I was visiting with her earlier this week. We were putting her in an inpatient hospice care facility, and I was reading passages on Easter and all the Easter passages and resurrection passages I could possibly find to read and encourage her. And at one point, she said, Jason, you've got to promise me one thing. No matter what happens to me, you have to promise me that you will preach on Easter. And I responded, Mom, I have to preach on Easter because my heart needs it. I need to hear about the hope of the resurrection. I heard this week a story about a pastor in Jackson, Mississippi, who on Easter stood up and very simply leaned into the mic and uttered these words, it's all true. And then he sat down. That might be appropriate this morning with the weather. I'll try to say more. I hope to say more, but we'll see. More than anything, that's what my heart needs to hear on this Easter morning is that it's all true. And since we live in a broken world and every single one of us have things in our lives right now as we sit here that are making us groan, things in our lives that make us take a deep breath and sigh, Because we live in a broken world and we're broken because of that, I would guess that that's what your heart needs too this morning, doesn't it? More than anything else, it's all true. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whether you're full of faith, whether you're full of doubt and unbelief, and you're just here because that's what you do on Easter, I pray that we would enter into this story, this familiar story, and that Jesus would make it fresh to us through His Spirit and that we would be shaped by this passage and shaped by the resurrection and more than anything, that under this tent on this rainy Easter morning, that we would encounter the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at three things this morning. The certainty of Jesus' death, the certainty of the resurrection, and the certainty of hope. The certainty of death. Look at verse 42. It was evening... And so that puts these events late Friday afternoon, just before the sunset, and Jesus is hanging dead from a cross. 
It's preparation day. That means it's the day before the Sabbath and Jewish customs needed to be followed. And in order for Jesus to be buried, that needed to happen very quickly because the following day was the Sabbath and work was forbidden. Then, look at verse 43, we're introduced to a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He's a good man. He's a religious man. He's a respected member of the council, which is the Sanhedrin. And remember a few weeks ago and a few chapters before, the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus put to death. And so what this shows us is that not all of the Jewish religious authorities opposed Jesus. John tells us in his gospel that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. And he goes boldly to Pilate and courageously, and he asks for Jesus' body. Think about the courage it took. Okay, he's going to ask for the body of, to the Roman governor, of the, the body of the man who was executed for being an enemy of Rome. Just think about Peter. He couldn't utter Jesus' word, because he was so, his name, because he was so afraid to even be associated with Jesus. And so Joseph knew that this could cost him his life. And he didn't care. He took courage and he showed himself to be a faithful disciple and he wanted to give Jesus a proper burial. Usually it was a relative or a close family member or a friend, a close friend who would request the body from the cross in order for the burial. Where are the close friends of Jesus? They're nowhere to be found. The women, they're there, but notice they're at a distance. And so Joseph, a stranger, is looking at a dead Jesus hanging from a tree, and he wants to give Jesus a proper burial. And he knows that Roman custom stands in the way. Why? Because criminals would be crucified on crosses and Rome would leave them up until their bodies started to decay and birds would start to come. I got water coming in. <laughs> A lot of water coming in. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and birds would start to come and eat their flesh because what Rome wanted to send a message that this is what happens to people who are enemies of Rome and who disobey Roman law. And so Joseph understood that, and he goes anyway to Pilate, and he asks for the body. Look at verses 44 and 45. He's shocked that Jesus is already dead. Uh, this is happening quicker than normal. And so what does Pilate do? Well, he calls for the coroner. That's what he does. The centurion, they were like corners. They were experts at pronouncing death because they had stood at the cross of lots of crucifixions and they knew when a person was pronounced dead. And so he asked the centurion, is he dead? Yes. Pilate heard that, uh, heard that and he gives Joseph, notice the word there in the ESV, the English Standard Version, is corpse. That's important. It's not body like the New International Version says. Corpse means that Jesus is dead, and we'll talk about why that's important in a minute. We don't know why Pilate gives Joseph uh, the body. Maybe he thought Jesus was innocent. Maybe he didn't want an insurrection from the Jews. We don't know. But at this point, Joseph starts to speed up his activities because he's got a deadline to meet 
before the Sabbath. Please don't miss verse 46. Do not miss verse 46 and taking him down. Taking him down. Joseph, think about this, took Jesus down from the cross. Have you ever thought about that? Can you imagine? Maybe he had help, we don't know. But taking the spikes out of Jesus' hands and out of Jesus' feet, and most certainly as he carried Jesus' dead body, Joseph was blood-stained himself as he held his Savior in his arms, and he lays Jesus down, and it was Roman custom to bathe the body before putting it in, li in linen, and I doubt very seriously that Joseph, even though it's not recorded, would have skipped that step. Ordinarily at this point, the person would be anointed with spices to keep the stench away in the grave and to also honor the body, but because of the lateness of the hour, again, they have a deadline to meet, and so they postpone the anointing with spices, and he lays in this tomb cut out of the rock, and they roll a stone against the tomb. Not like our burial custom of sealing a corpse in a coffin and putting it in the ground. They would carve out caves, the side of caves, and they would place the body on these niches or these shelves where they would place the body and they would roll this huge disc-like stone in front of it to keep animals away and to keep robbers away. And so the question is, why all of this detail about the death of Jesus? So what? Why does this matter? Very simply, Mark is making the point to us this morning that Jesus really did die. Jesus really did die. And the reason why that's important is because throughout church history, people have said that Jesus didn't die, he just fainted. He fainted on the cross, passed out because of the pain, that, and they put him in the tomb. He revived in the tomb, rolled the stone away on his own, and walked out. What's the problem with that? The problem with that, think about the centurion, the problem is that if Rome knew anything, they knew how to kill you. The centurion, again, the coroner, knew when someone was dead. Testimony of the centurion before Pilate and the description assures us this morning that Jesus truly died. He did not pass out and revive, and this account proves this. Three witnesses, Joseph, verse 43, Pilate, verse 44, the centurion, verse 45, all of them were witnesses that Jesus was dead and two of them actually had contact with the body. It's also worth noting that throughout history, thousands of crucifixions were recorded from Rome in history. Do you know how many survivors there were? Zero. The point is that Jesus was not resuscitated. He was resurrected from the dead. You have no hope this morning if Jesus was resuscitated. Your hope this morning is that Jesus walked out of the grave. It's why in the Apostles' Creed, and we go through these verses really, or these words very oftentimes, and we overlook them. The Apostles' Creed, we confess our uh, faith together, and what do we say? I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
crucified, dead, and buried. The resurrection, number two, the certainty of the resurrection. Look at verses one through five. So now the sun is risen, and the women, notice they're mentioned again, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome. Notice how many times they're mentioned. Doesn't that strike you as interesting? Why does Mark keep mentioning the names? Why? Because he's certifying the eyewitnesses to the events described. He's letting us know that this is an historical count. This is not something made up. This is not a legend. These women were at at the end of chapter 15. We're at the cross. Verse 47 seems like a weird verse. They saw the burial, and now they saw the empty tomb. Mark is saying most people think these women were still alive, and it's Mark's way of saying, you don't believe me? Here's the address, and here's the name of these women You go ask them. And so these women take the spices and they go to anoint Jesus' body, but they're not expecting an empty tomb. They're not expecting it. Notice as they're going, they're consumed with rolling away the stone. Who will roll away the stone so that we can get in? Most certainly they're probably thinking, if we had the 12 disciples... (laughs) If we had the men, maybe we would have a chance. But they're nowhere to be found because they sold Jesus out and left him when they needed him the most. And when they arrive there, they see the stone has been rolled away. They enter the tomb. They see an angel sitting there. Notice it says on the right side. Again, notice the detail. That's eyewitness detail. They're alarmed. Verse 8 says, trembling and astonishment seized them. This was surprising to them and unexpected and frightening. And that is important because oftentimes we think or people think, oh, well, back then in the first century, they just believed this kind of stuff. It was easy for them to believe in something like then. They were predisposed to believing it. Please do not miss the fact uh, that they were surprised And they weren't predisposed to believing in the resurrection any more than we are this morning sitting here in 2022. But while it is the resurrection was unexpected, it is undeniably true. You see, no one throughout church history believed um, that uh, they everyone believed that the tomb was empty. That was not a question. The question comes, and the problem is, how was the tomb? empty and over the years people have said well the Rome they're the ones that took Jesus's body they took the body of Jesus that doesn't make any sense why doesn't it make sense well think about it read the book of Acts Christianity toppled the Roman Empire in three less than 300 years if Rome had the body and they knew where Jesus was buried, they could have produced it, and they could have shut Christianity down and discredited it in a matter of hours. That did not happen. Why? Because Jesus walked out of the grave. The other most common argument is that the resurrection, is the disciples, they're the ones that took the body. That didn't make any sense either. You're telling me that the disciples that deserted Jesus 
And Peter, who denied Jesus and was crucified upside down, would be crucified upside down, as history tells us, for a lie. Not a chance. History tells us that all of the disciples were martyred or exiled for following Jesus. Do you think that the men who wouldn't sacrifice anything while Jesus was alive, if they were getting ready to be killed for following Jesus, don't you think they would have said, wait, stop, it's a joke, we made this up, here's the body. Lies don't transform people from sellouts into martyrs. I want to thank you all for tuning in with us today and also uh, say thank you for your graciousness and your patience with us on Easter Sunday. It was quite a Sunday. Um, and as you know, our service was interrupted by the thunderstorms on that day and I did not get to finish the sermon. And so I'm going to do that now uh, and finish uh, the last part of the second point, which is the certainty of the resurrection, and then uh, finish my last point, and I will do that now. Chuck Colson, the center of the Watergate scandal in the 1970s, later became a Christian and started a prison ministry, and he said this, this is a popular quote, maybe you've heard this, but he's, I love this quote. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Well, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they had proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison, and they would not have endured that if the resurrection weren't true. Watergate consisted of 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, Colson says. The only explanation is that the resurrection is true and that it really happened. Two quick points of application. First, maybe you're here this morning uh, and you're not convinced. If you're going to have academic integrity, then the burden of proof, you need to know this, that the burden of proof for the resurrection doesn't rest completely on Christians. You must realize that you are making a faith commitment too. It is not simply enough just to dismiss the resurrection out of hand you must come up with an historical, reasonable, alternative explanation to the birth of the early church. You must be able to explain why 2,000 years later, 1,200 people are sitting under a tent on Easter Sunday worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I want you to know that you can have real confidence in your Bible. And I want you to know that it's all true. 
that the resurrection is historical, it's true, and it happened in space and time, and so be confident. Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. It is reasonable. Lastly, this morning, the certainty. We've looked at the certainty of Jesus' death, the certainty of the resurrection, and lastly, let's look at the certainty of hope. Look at verse 6. The angel said to the, woman, to the women at the tomb, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. In other words, who died. We've talked about that in point one. He is risen. He is not here. And those powerful words of resurrection, they change absolutely everything. How do they change everything? And what do they change? Well, first, the resurrection And the truth of the the resurrection changes the way you relate to Jesus. Has this event, the resurrection, has it owned your life? Or is Jesus still simply an add-on to you? Friends, you do not make a man who rose from the dead an add-on. The reality of the resurrection informs everything else when a man rises from the dead you have to submit to him you have to listen to what he says and the other thing the resurrection changes is it and transforms is our guilt and shame my favorite verse in the passage verse 7 but go tell the disciples and then here it is and peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Remember, he's already mentioned this in Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 28. He told them this. And notice here, and what I want you to see is notice which would have been warranted. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, go tell those faithless failures those backstabbing cowards that I'm through with them and I'm starting over. I'm picking an entirely new group of disciples and tell them they should be deeply ashamed of themselves. That's not what Jesus says. His message was, I will see you again. I am going ahead of you to Galilee and I will be waiting for you because I want you back. You see, in the midst of our failures and in the midst of our sin and in the midst of doing the thing that we never thought we would do, we think oftentimes our immediate reaction is that Jesus is going to start over with someone else, that Jesus is going to send us back, that he's going to send us away. And friends, the resurrection of Jesus is a reminder for real sinners Real sinners at Faith Presbyterian Church who have wept bitterly over their failures that Jesus will never send us back. We see the abandonment of the disciples, the betrayal, the denial of Peter, they do not have the last word. And your sin does not have the last word this morning in your life either. The last word belongs to the resurrected Jesus, and those words are words of grace. The resurrection changes 
the way we relate to Jesus. It changes the way uh, we think of our guilt and shame, and it changes our grief and gives us hope. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees your resurrection. Our hope this morning is that Jesus walked out of the grave. And because Jesus walked out of the grave, then that means if you belong to Jesus, that you will one day walk out of the grave. The fact that the tomb was empty and that it's all true means that one day this broken world will be made right and all of the sad things will come untrue. Easter reminds us that our hope is not in this world that our hope is anchored in the world to come, that it is anchored in eternity. Therefore, Easter changes the way we think about our suffering and the way we think about death. Tim Keller, many of you might be aware, uh, has terminal uh, pancreatic cancer, and he had an interview during Holy Week, and listen to what he says. He said, I do think that the great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole lot more. Because I look at Easter and I say, because of this, because of the resurrection, I can face anything. He goes on to say, in the past, I used to think Easter was a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now, after having cancer, I see that Easter is a universal solvent. A universal solvent that can eat through any fear, any suffering, any anger, or any despair. I see Easter as more powerful than ever before. The question before all of us this morning is, do we have that kind of Easter hope as we sit here today? There's a man in Italy. There he saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before This man was not a Christian, in fact, was completely against Christianity. And so the man had this huge stone slab put over his grave so that he would not be raised from the dead in case there was a resurrection from the dead. And he had written all over the top of this stone slab things like, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I do not believe in it. And evidently, when this man was buried, an acorn must have fallen into his grave. And so now, hundreds of years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and split that stone slab, and it was now a huge oak tree growing out of the grave. And the minister looked at it and asked, if an acorn, which has the power of biological life in it, can split a stone slab of that magnitude what can the acorn of God's resurrection what does an acorn of God's resurrection power what can that do in a person's life you see the resurrection of Jesus friends launches the reversal and renewal of all things The resurrection of Jesus is the unstoppable, life-producing acorn that is planted in the ground of our brokenness, sorrow, and death. And all the immovable slabs in our life, the immovable slabs of death, 
and cancer and terminal illness and disease and pain and tears. All of those things, because of the resurrection of Jesus, those things that seem so immovable in our lives in the present, they will be reversed by the resurrected Lord. You often hear people say, don't get your hopes up. Easter says, get them up. Get them up higher. So high that that power, the power of the resurrection, would have the ability to reorient our lives and how we live today. He is not here. He is risen. Those words change everything. They change everything. And friends, just like we began the sermon with the pastor leaning into the mic in Jackson, Mississippi, I will lean into the mic to you today and say, it's all true. My question I will leave you with is, do you believe that today? Whether it's your first time to believe it or the hundredth time to believe it, will you come and place your faith in the resurrected Jesus? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for conquering death. The grave could not hold you. and One day you will raise us and you will make all the wrongs in the world right and you will make all the sad things untrue. If there's anyone that's listening to this that doesn't believe, I pray that you would make the gospel, make your death and resurrection personal to them. Give them faith, open up their eyes, give them ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and what he has done. It's in his name we pray, amen.